hello fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and I'm so glad that you've joined me today. This week we're going to be digging deep into Joseph Smith history, verses 27 to 65. And then we're also going to do Doctrine and Covenants section 2. Now this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. And the icebreaker this week revolves around the idea of preparation. So I like to start with this question. See if you can name the top five professions that require the most schooling. And this is, of course, a a more generalized list. Um, I'm sure you could argue that other certain specific disciplines could require more training. But in general, these are the top five. And the first one's pretty obvious. Uh, That would be a doctor or a surgeon. Sometimes the schooling and the apprenticeship can be up to 10 to 14 years before you can start independently practicing as a doctor. Uh, Number two, a lawyer, dentist, college professor, and engineering. And that could be any type of engineering, whether it's uh, mechanical, electrical, chemical, biomedical, or civil. But some of the runners-up that maybe you guessed, uh, you could also have said veterinarians, architects, biologists, and psychiatrists. And as you look at those professions, it, it really makes sense, doesn't it? You wouldn't want a surgeon to operate on you that didn't have lots of preparation and experience beforehand. And you wouldn't want a lawyer to represent you that didn't know what they were doing. And you probably wouldn't trust a professor who had a fake degree. Certain responsibilities require preparation and and lots of it. So it should come as no surprise to discover that even prophets need preparation. And when Joseph Smith had the first vision at age 14, he wasn't ready at that point to start organizing the church. The Lord gave Joseph a period of preparation to help him to be ready for those great future responsibilities. And in fact, Let's maybe brainstorm that for just a minute. What are some of the great future responsibilities that Joseph would have? Well, let's see. You've got translating the Book of Mormon, organizing the church, establishing cities, building temples, calling leaders, serving missions, receiving revelations, not to mention being a husband and a father at the same time. And it's really amazing to consider all that Joseph was able to accomplish in his short 38 years here on earth. But he still needed some preparation to accomplish that. Well, Joseph Smith history verses 27 to 65 is going to show us some of the things that God gave Joseph to help prepare him for his future sacred responsibilities. And here's how I'd like to approach this. I'm going to highlight some of the phrases from this section. And I want you to ponder what it is that God is giving Joseph to prepare him. So here we go. Starting in verses 29 through 30. I betook myself to prayer and supplication. And then calling upon God. Well, what has God given Joseph here to help prepare him? Heavenly communication through prayer. Joseph already knew from his experience with the first vision that he could go directly to his heavenly father for help and guidance. 
just like he learned in James 1.5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and it shall be given him. And we all know what happens next. Joseph does receive a divine manifestation in the form of an angel. His room fills with light, and Moroni appears. And I do have to mention, I, I get a kick out of the description of what Moroni is wearing in verse 31. Joseph really goes into detail. It's just a robe, bare feet, bare arms, open neck. That's what we get to wear in heaven, apparently. Uh, a robe, not all this uncomfortable garb that we wear to religious functions today. When you get there, they present you with your robe, and you live for eternity in comfort. Now, if you go to hell, they hand you a suit and tie, or uh, a dress and high heels for the women. But, uh, but anyway, I digress. Moving on to the next thing that God gave Joseph. Verse 33, he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, and that his name was Moroni. So God gave Joseph prophetic guidance. There were no living prophets on the earth at that time. And so he sent him the next best thing, a resurrected prophet. And that prophet, Moroni, is going to give him all the instruction he needs to bring forth the Book of Mormon and set in motion the restoration of the church of Jesus Christ. Also in verse 33, God had a work for me to do, and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. Well, here God provides Joseph with a sense and a vision of the future, or his future, an increased understanding of his role in the unfolding of the restoration. The work that he was being called to do was important. It was notable. So much so that people all over the world were going to know his name for either good or evil. And consider that. Uh, has that prophecy been fulfilled? For certain, right? I remember speaking to people in little makeshift shelters in obscure villages in the interior of Brazil. And many of them had indeed heard of Joseph Smith. Now, the majority knew his name for evil, but it was a great honor to teach his name for good and change their perception of him, at least in the minds of some. But Moroni here is giving Joseph a vision of his future, what he was meant to accomplish. Verse 34, he said there was a book deposited and the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it. Well, Joseph was given Latter-day Scripture that contained the fullness of the gospel. And, and that was going to help him to understand God's plan and God's true doctrines. Oh, and then Moroni adds, and by the way, Joseph, you're going to be responsible for translating that record. But you're also going to benefit from its message. So Joseph has the benefit of Latter-day Scripture. Verses 36 through 41. And as you skim through this, what is it that Moroni is doing in this section? Well, he, he's quoting scripture, mostly from the Old Testament, interestingly enough. So he quotes Malachi, which we're going to study Malachi 4 later today because that shows up as section 2 of the Doctrine and Covenants, although it's worded a little differently. He quotes Isaiah 11, which describes the gathering of Israel and Christ's millennial reign. 
he quotes Acts 3, 22 through 23, that prophesies that all who won't hearken to Christ will be cut off, and that that day was soon to come. He quotes Joel 2, 28 through 32, that prophesies of the last days where sons and daughters will prophesy, old men shall dream dreams, and young men shall have visions. Hint, hint, like you, Joseph. And then Joseph tells us that Moroni quotes many other passages of Scripture. So what's he doing here? Not only has Moroni given him a sense of the future, but also a sense of what? The past. That previous generations had prophesied and looked forward to Joseph Smith's day and that he would be a part of living up to that legacy and fulfilling that heritage and those prophecies. So he's got a sense of the past and a connection to the past. Well, after quoting those prophecies, Moroni leaves. But then look at this, verse 44. I suddenly discovered that my room was again beginning to get lighted. And he again related the very same things. And then Moroni leaves again. But, verse 46, But what was my surprise when again I beheld the same messenger at my bedside and heard him rehearse or repeat over again to me the same things as before. And by the time Moroni leaves the third time, it's morning and time for Joseph to go to work which he does. But Father Smith notices that something's wrong with Joseph and he tells him to go back home. And then on the way home, Joseph collapses at the fence. And what happens? Moroni appears again. Verse 49, I looked up and beheld the same messenger standing over my head. He then again related to me all that he had related to me the previous night. So why do you think God has Moroni do this? to impress the message deeply upon his mind by repetition. He's given him repeated messages. Joseph's a teenager, after all, and uh, they often need frequent reminders of what to do. And I know this. I, I teach teenagers, so uh, I know that I have to remind my students at least four times to put their names on their paper for most of them to actually do it. And some still forget. So he's giving him repeated messages to help him remember what he's been given and to show how important that message is too. And now let's backtrack a little bit to verse 46. During one of those visits, Moroni added a caution to me, telling me that Satan would try to tempt me in consequence of the indigent or, or poor circumstances of my father's family to get the plates for the purpose of getting rich. So what's he giving him here? A specific warning. Joseph, Satan's going to try to tempt you, but you've got to be strong. You've got to resist that impulse to use the plates for money. In verse 49, after Moroni's fourth visit, he tells Joseph to go and tell his father about the vision, which Joseph does. And why would Moroni want him to do that? I think it's because he knows that Joseph's family is going to support him and encourage him. Joseph Smith Sr. immediately tells Joseph that he should go and do as the messenger commanded. And you know, the first family of the church is really 
a shining example of what Latter-day families should strive to be. They support Joseph to the end. And that's, that's another link in the chain of my testimony of Joseph Smith as a prophet. Because either Joseph's a prophet or he made it all up. And if he did make it all up, the very first people that he would have had to deceive was his own family. And I just don't buy it. From everything I've read, this family, the Smith family, was filled with love and support and loyalty. There, there's no way that Joseph would have put them through what they would have to endure for a lie. Moroni knew that Joseph Smith Sr. would support his son, as well as Lucy Mack and Alvin and Hiram and Samuel and all the others. God gave Joseph a supportive family. So Joseph goes to the Hill Cumorah. And when he gets there and uncovers the plates, the scriptures tell us that he was forbidden to take them. And we'll talk a little bit about that experience later. But Joseph tells us that after that, verse 54, I went at the end of each year, and at each time I found the same messenger there and received instruction and intelligence from him at each of our interviews. So what's God giving Joseph here? A yearly interview with a priesthood leader to continually help and prepare Joseph until the time would come when he would begin to take on the great responsibilities that have been placed before him. So just take a look at our list here. Look at all the things that God did for Joseph to help prepare him for his sacred responsibilities. Now this is my favorite part of the lesson because the class often doesn't see it coming. And I just love to see the way their eyes light up when they get it, right? when they make that connection. And so I say, all right, let's liken the scriptures. Joseph had great responsibilities and opportunities on his path in his future. But what are some of yours? And then you just brainstorm some of those things. Being a wife or a husband, fatherhood or motherhood, temple covenants, church responsibilities, missionary work, career. And by the way, this works really well with the youth. Now, God gave Joseph a lot of things to help him and to prepare him for his amazing future. But that was Joseph Smith, right? Of course, he's going to give him a lot of help. But are there any things that God has given you to help prepare you for your future sacred responsibilities? And hopefully somebody gets it. They usually do. Look at that list. He's given you all the same things, hasn't he? And then you just go down that list and you look at each one and ask, how has God given us the same things? Well, we have access to God and divine manifestation through prayer, right? We have prophetic guidance. In fact, he's given us 15, the first presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. We have access to a vision of our future work and blessings. And where do we get that? A patriarchal blessing. That gives us a vision of our future and intended blessings. We have Latter-day Scripture, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. 
All the principles we need to survive the last days are found within those books. We've also been given a sense of the past and a rich heritage, not only through the people in the scriptures, but the pioneers, our own ancestors, those in our families that first joined the church, whether they're distant or it's more recent. We get repeated messages, don't we? Weekly church, daily scripture study, seminary, institute, youth activities, general conference, the messages in the Liahona and for the strength of youth, firesides, FSY, and on and on and on. God has provided ample, repeated messages to help prepare us. We have specific warnings of how Satan's going to try to tempt us. The prophets give us warnings. Local leaders give us warnings. The standards in the For Strength of Youth pamphlet gives warnings. We know that Satan is not going to go down without a fight. He tried to get Joseph. He's going to try to get us too. We've got to be prepared. And this next one, we hopefully have a supportive family. I suppose that, that this may not apply to all. But if you don't have a supportive immediate family you can at least turn to a supportive ward family. And then this last one, does that one apply as well? A yearly interview? Well, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite things to do as a bishop, sitting down with the phenomenal youth of my ward and the adult members of my ward as well and check in on their growth and progress and be there to offer instruction and help. And isn't, isn't that amazing? God cares just as much about your future in the church as he did about Joseph's. Your future is important enough to him to give you the same things. What a loving Heavenly Father we have. And before we conclude this portion of the lesson, there's one more similarity that I'd like to illustrate here. Even with all that Joseph has going for him, how does he describe himself as a teenager, and those teenage years, specifically during those intervening years between the first vision and Moroni's visit. you got to go back to verse 28. He tells us that he was left to all kinds of temptations, that he mingled with all kinds of society, which suggests that it probably wasn't the best kind of society that he was mingling with. He frequently fell into many foolish errors, he displayed the weakness of youth, the foibles of human nature. He was led into diverse temptations, offensive in the sight of God. Now, he, he does assure us that he wasn't guilty of any great malignant sins, but that he was guilty of levity or light-mindedness, associated with jovial company, not consistent with that character which ought to be maintained by one who was called of God. Well, what did we just learn about Joseph as a teenager? He, he wasn't perfect. He made some mistakes and felt that he wasn't living up to the character of somebody who was in his position, somebody that was called of God. And can you relate? Now, I remember taking a church history class from Susan Easton Black at BYU, which was amazing, by the way. And she explained that Joseph often spent time at the blacksmith shop in Palmyra. Now, why would he do that? Probably because the people that were there were usually passers-by, people stopping to get their wagon wheels fixed or guns repaired or 
fix tools. People that didn't know Joseph's story, because we learned from last time that the people in Palmyra heaped persecution on Joseph's head. But what kinds of people or society would probably be passing through? Who is he most likely to encounter? Trappers, traveling salesmen, conmen, people escaping their past, transients? Probably not the best of society. Jovial company, levity. I'm sure Joseph probably felt he went a little too far in his association and conversations with them. Besides, Joseph admits that he had a native, cheery temperament. So uh, sometimes teenage boys can be a little light-minded, cross the line of propriety. And Joseph really worried about that aspect of his youth. And that's what prompts him to pray in the first place, praying for forgiveness. So are we probably going to make some mistakes too? Yeah, yeah, even Joseph did. We're probably going to fall into some foolish errors here and there, some diverse temptations, display the weakness of youth and the foibles of human nature. And a great example of this weakness of youth comes when Joseph first goes to the hill Cumorah to uncover the plates. Now, we all know what the temptation Joseph is going to face when he goes for the plates is, right? Moroni specifically warns him about it, and it was to not to use the plates for money. The treasure was the record itself, not the material that they were recorded on. So what do you think is going to happen? Is Joseph going to be strong and resist that temptation? You might be surprised at what happens. In verse 53, we find that as Joseph makes an attempt to get the plates, he's forbidden by the messenger to take them. And that is a bit of an understatement when you read the full story. And Oliver Cowdery relates this to us, and, and surely he got this from Joseph. And I want to quote this to you. It's a bit long, but I think it's significant to help us understand the principle here. Let's go with Joseph to the hill Cumorah and try to get into his mind a little bit. You will have wondered, perhaps, that the mind of our brother should be so occupied with the thoughts of the goods of this world at the time of arriving at Cumorah, on the morning of the 22nd of September, 1823. After having been wrapped in the visions of heaven during the night, and also seeing and hearing in open day, but the mind of man is easily turned if it is not held by the power of God through the prayer of faith. And you will remember that I have said that two invisible powers were operating upon his mind during his walk from his residence to Camorra, and that the one urging the certainty of wealth and ease in this life had so powerfully wrought upon him that the great object so carefully and impressively named by the angel had entirely gone from his recollection that only a fixed determination to obtain now urged him forward. So what had Joseph decided as he was walking to the hill Cumorah? To use the plates for money. A fixed determination to obtain now urged him forward. And I know that's surprising. But of course, I think it also speaks to Joseph's character that 
his motivation to use the plates for money isn't necessarily out of a desire to get wealth and notoriety, but to help his family. Because unfortunately, the Smith family had suffered a number of financial failures up to this point. After arriving at the repository, a little exertion removing the soil from the edges of the top of the box and a light pry brought to his natural vision its contents. On attempting to take possession of the record, a shock was produced upon his system by an invisible power which deprived him in a measure of his natural strength. He desisted for an instant and then made another attempt, but was more sensibly shocked than before. Remember, he's a teenager. He needs repeated messages for this to get through. He therefore made the third attempt with an increased exertion when his strength failed him more than at either of the former times, and without premeditating, he exclaimed, Why can I not obtain this book? Because you have not kept the commandments of the Lord, answered a voice, within a seeming short distance. He looked, and to his astonishment, there stood the angel who had previously given him the directions concerning this matter. In an instant, all the former instructions, the great intelligence concerning Israel in the last days, were brought to his mind. He thought of the time when his heart was fervently engaged in prayer to the Lord, when his spirit was contrite, and when his holy messenger from the skies unfolded the wonderful things connected with this record. He had come, to be sure, and found the word of the angel fulfilled concerning the reality of the record, but he had failed to remember the great end for which they had been kept, and in consequence could not have power to take them into his possession and bear them away. So that is part of the reason why Joseph had to wait nearly four years to actually obtain the plates. He wasn't ready. He needed further preparation. And Oliver adds this poignant observation about Joseph. In this which occasioned a failure to obtain, at that time the record, do not understand me to attach blame to our brother. He was young, and his mind easily turned from correct principles. Unless he could be favored with a certain round of experience. And yet, while young, untraditioned, and untaught in the systems of the world, he was in a situation to be led into the great work of God and be qualified to perform it in due time. So, we too are probably going to have our minds turned on occasion from correct principles. We're going to err and display some weakness. Even Joseph did. We need to be favored with a certain round of experience now, like Joseph, hopefully we're not guilty of any malignant sins, but we are also in a situation to be led into a great work of God and qualify to perform it in due time. But what did God provide Joseph with and all of us when we fall into these foolish errors? He forgives him. He gives him another chance. He works with him. He teaches him. He was still called to do great things. God did not give up on him. He gave him experience. 
and God will do the same for us. And isn't our Father in heaven amazing? Not only has he given us great opportunities and responsibilities, but he also has the foresight and the care to provide us a chance to prepare for those things. It is evidence of the great outpouring of love and concern that he must feel for us. And I have a plea for all of us, and maybe even more specifically to the youth. Please don't take these blessings, these preparatory tools for granted. I think I did a little when I was younger. If we recognize the preparation and the love and take advantage of these things, then like Joseph, I'm certain that we too will accomplish great things in his kingdom. Well, there's one brief insight from these verses that I want to add before we move on. It comes in verse 28. One of the great questions of religion is what you do when you encounter those that don't believe in what you do or who won't accept what you teach them. If you have conviction in your own beliefs, you can only come to the conclusion that they're wrong, that they're deluded. So what do you do? Unfortunately, in much of religious history, they resorted to wars, persecution, crusades, inquisitions, burnings at the stake, executions, and pogroms. It is a sad commentary on religion that this is how the religious have often dealt with each other with that question. Their solution to what you do when you encounter the lost sheep is to slaughter it. And is that the way that Christ would have it be? Obviously not. So what's a better solution? I love the solution that Joseph gives us right here in verse 28. Because he did find himself in that situation. He was being persecuted sorely for not believing what everybody else around him believed. Now you read verse 28 and see if you can find a better solution for dealing with lost sheep. Can you find it? Joseph says, Having been forbidden to join any of the religious sects of the day, and being of very tender years, and persecuted by those who, here's the solution, ought to have been my friends, and to have treated me kindly. And if they supposed me to be deluded, to have endeavored in a proper and affectionate manner to have reclaimed me. So what should we do when we encounter a lost sheep or somebody who believes differently than us or who we disagree with religiously or politically or intellectually? We befriend them. We treat them kindly. We endeavor in a proper and affectionate manner to reclaim them. That's Christ's way. We don't hate them or persecute them or mock them or shun them or try to eliminate them. Hopefully, we, we could try Joseph's suggestion. And if we did, the history of this world would be so different, so much better if we could just follow that advice. Hopefully, at least we can as members of Christ's church. Now, I'm only going to summarize verses 55 to 65. They're mainly narrative. 
in the midst of Joseph's preparation to receive the plates, life goes on for him and the Smith family. And there are other things the Lord is going to do to help him to be prepared. Some of the significant events here, Joseph works, his older brother Alvin dies, which really has a profound effect on Joseph. And and we'll talk more about Alvin when we get to section 137. While working for Josiah Stoll, he meets and falls in love with an amazing woman who is also going to be a major part of his preparation, Emma, who he marries to the dismay of her parents. They move back to the Smith farm where Joseph finally receives the plates and begins the work of translation with the help of Martin Harris, a wealthy farmer in the area. And then you also have the Professor Anton incident described here, but Maybe we'll try to discuss that another time. But I would like to spend the remainder of our time together in Doctrine and Covenants section 2. A huge section in meaning and significance, but a very short section in length. And as an icebreaker, I like to introduce this lesson with a scripture study skill. And often I like to sprinkle these in my lessons throughout the year because one of my goals as a teacher is to train my students in the fine art of scripture study. I want to teach them how to do it on their own. So here's how I introduce one of the fundamentals of effective scripture study. I begin by telling them that I have some questions that I've always wondered about, and maybe they have too. And I share this list. Why is something sent by car called a shipment, but something sent by ship called cargo? Why does the sun darken our skin but lighten our hair? If the number two pencil is so popular, why is it still number two? Why is abbreviated such a long word? And why is Charlie short for Charles when both are the same amount of letters? And then when butterflies get nervous, what do they get in their stomachs? And then finally, if olive oil comes from olives... Where does baby oil come from? <laughs> now, that's, that's kind of a fun list to go through, and they usually get a kick out of it. But then I tell them that one of the most important things that they can do when studying their scriptures is to slow down and ask questions, and maybe even write them down. When you're willing to ask a question, you give the Spirit an opportunity to answer you, or you inspire yourself to go deeper into a personal search for the answers. And actually, that's one of the ways that we got many sections of the Doctrine and Covenants in the first place. When Joseph was working on his inspired version of the Bible, he often stopped and asked the Lord questions about what certain things meant and why they were there. And oftentimes in response, he'd get a revelation. Well, we should try to study our scriptures in the same way. So today, for Doctrine and Covenants section 2, we're going to practice the skill of asking questions. And I'd like to start with one of my own. What is interesting about this set of scripture references? What do you notice? And when I ask that, there are actually two things that I hope they notice. The first Each of these references basically says the same thing. They're different variations of the same prophecy. But there's a second interesting thing. Look 
at the books in which they're found. Do you notice anything? You've got Malachi, Luke, 3rd Nephi, Joseph Smith history, and the Doctrine and Covenants. The prophecy is found in each of the standard works. You've got the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants. Even the itty-bitty Pearl of Great Price has it in it. And so what does that suggest about this particular prophecy? It's got, it's got to be important, right? Well, today we're going to spend our time looking closely at this particular prophecy as it's presented in section two of the Doctrine and Covenants. And this is a great section to practice our asking questions skill because it's so short. But don't be deceived by the length of the section. It may be short in length, but it's massive in spiritual significance. This prophecy was one of the very first things that Moroni shares with Joseph back in Joseph Smith history. When he first appears to him, he quotes Malachi. And so that's why this appears as section two, right after the preface. So really, it's the first revelation of the latter days, the first recorded revelation of the latter days. And John A. Widstow said this about this small section. The beginning and the end of the gospel is written in section two of the Doctrine and Covenants. That's quite a statement. And what does he mean by that? Let's try to figure out why. Your assignment is to read section two and come up with at least one question for each verse. Then we're going to spend the rest of the lesson trying to answer your questions. Now, as the teacher, you should have the answers to a bunch of questions prepared beforehand. But still, there's no way to guarantee that they're going to ask the questions that you've prepared for. The majority probably will. But what do you do if they ask a question that you haven't thought of? We'll celebrate that. That's great. You can seek the inspiration of the Spirit in that moment. You can ask the class collectively for their help and their thoughts. You can type their question into the church website and see what comes up. Or you could challenge the class to try and find an answer to that question by the next class time. Or if it's the kind of question that doesn't really have an answer, you can encourage them to act in faith and wait for further wisdom. And this can be a really great and engaging class activity. And it works really well. Because the section is short, but meaty, and it covers things that they're interested in. And I'll usually give them a handout to help them frame this activity. Now for this video, I'm going to give you some examples of the most common questions that I've gotten over the years, and I'll provide you with some insights and quotes that can help you to answer their questions. But starting in verse 1, and I'll break it into two sections. I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet. What does he mean by revealing the priesthood here? Well, the definition of priesthood is the power and authority of God. So the promise is that in the latter days, God would reveal or give unto man power and authority to do something. And he would reveal or give it through the hands of Elijah. Well, who was Elijah? Elijah was an ancient prophet of Israel. And some notable stories from his life, uh, he was the prophet who was fed by ravens during the 
heavenly induced drought. He was the prophet who calls down fire from heaven in the standoff with the priests of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. And he was the one that was taken into heaven by a chariot of fire. Well, next question, why Elijah? And I'll let Joseph Fielding Smith answer that question. It has been a mystery to many members of the church why this important mission was reserved for Elijah and why these authorities could not have been bestowed by some other prophet. Why send Elijah? Because he holds the keys of the authority to administer in all the ordinances of the priesthood. And without the authority is given, the ordinances could not be administered in righteousness. So Elijah held specific Melchizedek priesthood keys that would need to be restored in the latter days. Which specific keys? We'll talk about that in a second. Verse 2 gives us some clues. Now the second half of that verse, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What is the great and dreadful day of the Lord? Simply put, it's the second coming. Why is it described as being both great and dreadful? Well, the answer to that kind of depends on how you define the words great and dreadful. In the scriptural sense, great probably means momentous or significant, and the second coming certainly will be. But if you define the word great as meaning good or excellent, then I would say that the second coming will be great for some, but dreadful for others. Great for the righteous, dreadful for the wicked. And also, dreadful doesn't necessarily have to be defined as a negative thing either as in terrible or frightening. It could also mean awe-inspiring or impressive. That's the way that Jacob uses it in Genesis 48 when he has his vision of the stairway to heaven and says, how dreadful is this place? But dreadful in a positive way. Next question, has Elijah come yet? And that's an easy answer. Yes, he has. He has revealed or restored that priesthood power and authority. And when did he do that? April 3rd, 1836. In the town of Kirtland, Ohio, within the walls of the Kirtland Temple. And you can read about that visit in Doctrine and Covenants 110. And there, Elijah appears to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and confers upon them the keys of this dispensation. And the next verse will help us to understand what specific keys that he's referring to. Verse 2, And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. And the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. So the two key words here, promises and fathers. Who are the fathers? And that's a great question. There are actually two different sets of fathers being referred to in this verse. You've got the fathers, and then you've got their fathers. First, the fathers. That refers to the patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can see that in Doctrine and Covenants 27.10, which says, And also with Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, your fathers by whom the promises remain. So you can see these men are referred to as our fathers, by whom our other keyword shows up, the promises remain. And Bruce R. McConkie confirms this. He says, 
In the prophecy that he shall plant in the hearts of the children, the promises made to the fathers, the phrase the fathers refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom the promises were made. And you know, there are two reasons that we call them patriarchal blessings. One, because they're given by a state patriarch, but they're also called patriarchal blessings because they link us to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob, also referred to as Israel, had 12 sons. And we refer to their posterity as the 12 tribes of Israel. So when you receive a patriarchal blessing, your lineage is stated. And that's important because it connects you with the patriarchs and the promises that were made to them. And what are the promises made to the fathers? The promises are what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Now, that's a very deep subject, and we could spend hours on what that entails. But let me just summarize. God made promises to the ancient prophet Abraham that if he ministered the gospel to others, then he would be blessed with what I call the peas, right? Posterity above the number of the sands of the sea. Place, either the new Jerusalem or a place with God in his kingdom. And power, power of the priesthood. And you could read a lot more specifically about that in Abraham chapter 2. And it's going to come up a lot later in the Doctrine and Covenants. So stay tuned. Well, what part of all those amazing promises are being restored here through Elijah? And if you look in the Bible Dictionary, we find out what keys Elijah restored. Elijah held the sealing power of the Melchizedek priesthood. That particular power is being referred to here. And Bruce R. McConkie again, what are the promises? They are the promises of a continuation of the family unit in eternity. So it was a promise of eternal families, eternal connections between husbands and wives, parents and children, mankind and God. Some of the greatest blessings of the eternal gospel. And can you see why John A. Widstow would say that the beginning and the end of the gospel is written here? Well, who are the children? Joseph Fielding Smith again. The children are those now living. But then who are their fathers? What we've established at this point is that this promise of sealed families that was made to the fathers is going to have an effect on us, the children, that will cause our hearts to turn to our fathers. Our fathers, in this sense, are our ancestors. Why do they do that? Because when we've been blessed with the fruit of the gospel, with the promise of eternal sealing, it's only natural for us to want to share that privilege with our families. Like Lehi at the Tree of Life, after he partook of the fruit, his first desire was to share it with his family. Well, we want our families to have all the fruits of the gospel too. This promise gets planted in our hearts. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he uses that particular word. It gets planted because it grows into something living and beautiful. We talk about having a family tree with roots and branches, and we sometimes call that blooming and flourishing, being filled with the spirit of Elijah. And have you felt that yet? It's a 
powerful emotion. Joseph Smith referred to this temple work that we do for our ancestors, the most glorious of all subjects belonging to the everlasting gospel. And it is glorious. This work of uniting our ancestors to each other and to ourselves and to God. Can you see how important the message of this section is? Case in point, verse 3. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. And why would the earth be wasted at the second coming? Because millions of our Heavenly Father's children would be lost. Many of our own ancestors would be lost. But we believe in a Heavenly Father that's just. In a Heavenly Father that values every one of His children's souls. That is no respecter of persons. We believe in a Heavenly Father that sent us into this world as families. With connections. And the work for the dead proves that love. Now, if we're born in the covenant and we're only thinking of ourselves, we may not grasp the significance of this. But if we realize that our parents had parents, and they had parents, and they had parents, and so on and so on, and that they must surely wish to have that blessing of connection, that sealing, how can we not but feel a desire to provide them with that opportunity? Since we're connected to them. And if we don't do this work, not only will they not have that blessing, but we will lose ours if we fail to do it for them. Joseph Fielding Smith again. Why would the earth be wasted? Simply because if there is not a welding link between the fathers and the children, which is the work for the dead, then we will all stand rejected. The whole work of God will fail and be utterly wasted. We need them just as much as they need us. If we don't do this work, we'll stand rejected, and the whole earth will be utterly wasted. The plan of salvation will have been a waste. Well, there's one more very important question that must be asked before we conclude. And as a teacher, I would make sure that this was the final question that you cover if it hasn't already been asked. And that is, what can I do? We want to liken and apply the scriptures. So here are some suggestions. You could start by going to familysearch.org and exploring all the incredible tools that the church has for accomplishing this work. And here's a link if you're interested. With the instruction that you find there, you can start searching for the names of your ancestors that haven't had their work done yet and start gathering that information. And then once you have their names, you can take them to the temple and perform vicarious ordinances on their behalf. And that has got to be one of the most beautiful acts of service that we can do in this life. It is literally giving of yourself. Your own body becomes the means by which they receive God's promises. You can research the lives of your ancestors, learn more about them and their life experiences. That study will enrich your own life and your appreciation for them. And then you can get involved in the work of indexing, which makes family history research more possible 
for other people. And if you're interested in that, you can go to this link. There is much that you can do. Now, the Doctrine and Covenants has a lot more to say about the work for the dead, so stay tuned. You'll see that this becomes a major driving force in church history. The restoration of the priesthood, the building of temples, the revelations on the plan of salvation, they all point back to the importance of this work that we do for the dead. No wonder it was one of the very first prophecies quoted to Joseph by Moroni in this dispensation. Well, I hope that you felt the spirit of Elijah in your own life. Elijah has returned. Ask yourself if the prophecy has been fulfilled for you. Have you felt the promises made to the fathers planted in your own heart? Has your heart yet turned to your fathers? I can promise you that glorious blessings are always attached to a glorious work. And I hope that the biggest question that you leave with today is what can I do? And that you will do something. And I'll leave you with this promise made by Elder Bednar to those that choose to engage in this work. As you respond in faith to this invitation, your hearts shall turn to the fathers. The promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be implanted in your hearts. Your patriarchal blessing, with its declaration of lineage, will link you to these fathers and be more meaningful to you. Your love and gratitude for your ancestors will increase. Your testimony of and conversion to the Savior will become deep and abiding. And I promise you will be protected against the intensifying influence of the adversary. As you participate in and love this holy work, you will be safeguarded in your youth and throughout your lives. Well, may those blessings be yours. Thank you for spending this time with me today. It's always a pleasure to learn with you. I hope it's helped you in some way. If it has, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing. And if you'd like access to any of the materials that I use, uh, the handouts, the PowerPoints, lesson plans, you can go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links that'll take you to all of those resources. Thank you so much for watching. And as always, get out there and teach with power.